WDBM East Lansing. 89 FM. The Impact. And now, Impact Exposure. Exposure gives a voice to our community and provides a forum for discussing the relevant issues of today. Broadcasting from the campus of Michigan State University, this is Impact Exposure. Good evening and thank you for tuning in to Exposure. I'm Abby Newton. Today in Exposure, we will talk about the vicious dog legislation in Lansing and a Michigan State student who won big on Jeopardy will visit the studio. Later on Exposure, Enes Atal, who was born and raised in Syria, will talk about the current condition of the country. And also, we chat with police captain Jeff Murphy about how the department handles Spartan celebrations. But first, today's headlines. I'm hoping Indy brings us the same memories that... uh the palace did you know we've been pretty successful in the NCAA tournament down in Indy and yet unfortunately what you did in the past doesn't do anything except make you feel a little more comfortable it doesn't win any games or do anything for you there's no question that if you look at uh, the NCAA tournament and what's been done um, nobody's Duke because Duke is Duke but uh, we're one of the closest things to it as far as consistency and that should make for an incredible game uh that, would, that was head coach Tom Izzo talking about the NCAA tournament. The Spartan men's basketball team has made it to the Sweet 16 after victories over Memphis and Valparaiso. Spartan fans everywhere will surely tune in for a big game on Friday. In local news, customers of Lansing's public utility will be asked to pay $46 a year starting on July 1st to operate streetlights and fire hydrants. This is Mayor Bernero's attempt to fix the $5 million budget gap. Bernero proposed a budget for 2014 on Monday and said the new fees would raise $5.5 million and balance the budget all on its own, but the council still has to vote on this legislation. The Supreme Court heard a case from two California couples challenging the state's ban on same-sex marriage this morning. The couples say it violates the Constitution's guarantee of equal protection. Defenders of the ban say states should decide for themselves whether to permit same-sex marriage or not. And polls show that 53% of Americans support same-sex marriage. The ruling has not yet been declared, but CBS News reports that the justices seem uncertain as to if the U.S. is ready to make such a landmark decision. You're listening to Impact Exposure. For more variety than you'll hear on any other station, listen to the Impact Primetime, where you can find a different specialty show every night of the week. Friday nights at 10 p.m., get ready for The Mechanical Pulse, where we're spinning all the house, trance, drum and bass, electro, ambient, and remixed music you need to get the weekend started. You'll hear live interviews and DJs spinning straight from the Impact Studios and the best new music on the scene. So tune in every Friday night at 10 p.m. for Mechanical Pulse. Only on 88.9 The Impact. Have you ever considered donating your blood? If not, perhaps you might reconsider. By the time this announcement is through, 15 new people will need blood. In fact, blood is needed by one in every 10 hospital patients, and there is almost always a shortage. There is no substitute for human blood. It cannot be manufactured. It can only come from those willing to donate. To learn more or make an appointment, visit redcrossblood.org. Reconsider blood donation. It's about life. Now back to Impact Exposure. 
In late February, Mayor Bernero asked city council to explore a vicious dog legislation because he said some residents were living in fear because of these dogs. Recently, the Lansing City Council Committee on Public Safety said they will not move forward with any legislation due to a lack of research to per- support Bernero's claim. Now, in the studio today is Lansing City Councilwoman Jody Washington and resident Beth Contreras, who runs the animal rescue organization Voiceless. Both Jody and Beth didn't think the vicious dog legislation was appropriate because East Lansing and even the state of Michigan already has legislation that could combat this issue. We jump right into conversation with these two ladies. And part of the issue may be, and I I certainly understand this, that RLPD works so very hard and they I get it that if they don't have time to write a report or or take the dog down to the animal control, but maybe we can find a way if we don't have one to have some place to confine that dog in the city until the next day when animal control can pick it up. And Jamie has suggested um, that she give all the police cards for that will be dedicated to a voicemail just to them. They can just give the information on the phone, they'll run out the next day and take care of the issue. I just think there are so many ways that we can enforce what we have on the books already. And I don't, I didn't feel it was responsible or thoughtful to go forward with something that I just don't see the data supporting our need. I heard there were 30, 31 pit bulls killed. I don't have that data. The LPD certainly was invited to our meetings. And then I have to wonder from everything I've learned, how did they know they were pit bulls? It almost takes a DNA test to figure out that it's a pit bull. And I would want to know what what controls did you use before you shot the dog. And I certainly want to know why nothing's been forwarded to the courts. I'm just not getting the support. And I will say this about the looming crisis and people living in fear. I have gotten hundreds and hundreds of communications from folks saying, do not pass this. Uh, I did not get one, not one communication or one people speaking up at a meeting saying they were living in fear and that all pit bulls should be um, obliterated or not allowed. But Jamie did say, and I'm sure Beth could confirm this, that most 70% of the vicious dogs are unneutered males. It's not a breed, it's the neutering. And I don't know a lot about dogs. Beth certainly knows a lot more than I do. But I, as a councilwoman and being in the legislative part of our city government, I just didn't think it was the responsible thing to do at this time. If we put everything in place and it's not working and people are living in fear, we can, we can relook. But I, I would never be supportive of a breed specific law ever okay. and Beth and, <laughs> um, and you, in the community you work in you know mm-hmm. with the people you deal with what was their response I have of, yet to encounter anyone that would that would support any kind of breed restrictions or breed specific ordinance um, now granted I work heavily in an animal welfare community I deal with people that are adopting dogs from us or surrendering dogs to us and um, so obviously dog lovers but we're in the community in many other ways, fundraising, and so we, you know, we do encounter um, the public in non-animal related in non-animal related arenas, and we have yet to encounter anybody that would support that. And additionally, not only us locally, but there are major national organizations, even beyond the national animal organizations, such as the ASPCA, the Humane Society of the United States. Certainly, all of those organizations do not support breed-specific legislation, 
But there are others that you might be surprised to hear about, such as the Animal Control National Animal Control Association. Animal Control Associations don't support it because they say it's impossible to enforce and expensive to enforce. The American Bar Association just came out in late 2012 and announced their opposition to breed-specific legislation because of its difficulty and, and to enforce um, that, um, and it's costly. You know, there was a case just recently in Kansas City um, where they seized a dog that was said to be a pit bull. Um, the owners took it to court. The dog was in quarantine for eight months, paid for by the city in, in the city's shelter. The dog became very ill during that time, so the city then had to not only cover all of his medical expenses and his boarding care, but the cost of litigation. In the end, the owners won because they did a DNA test, and, and even though a, an animal control officer deemed that dog to be a pit bull, DNA tests showed otherwise. So even <laughs> experts in the field cannot accurately identify a pit bull because they're they're so mixed with so many breeds that you you know it, it's almost impossible to identify. And even pit bulls aren't one breed. There's generally three breeds, three designated breeds that are in a classification of being a pit bull. So you know it's it's a very difficult thing to enforce. It's costly, um, and certainly there's got to be more important things that taxpayers in the city of Lansing would, would want to spend their hard-earned money on. <laughs> <laughs> I do believe, though, Abby, that, that you know, I'm, I'm not going to negate the fact that I have heard from utility workers that when they go out to, to turn off the utilities that they let their dog out to charge at the worker or, or a police officer, which to me, you know, police officers have guns and tasers, and I, I think they can protect themselves from a dog. But I don't think you attack the breed. I think you deal harshly with that dog owner, and I don't care if it's a pit bull or a, a Rottweiler or a Pekingese. You deal harshly with that owner. If the dog needs to be put down because he unfortunately was raised by an irresponsible person, that's unfortunate, and it must be done. But let's deal with the actual issue. We have the laws in place to deal with those issues and we need people to be willing to testify against these owners and if they're willing to testify we we can take care of the problem but I think to require certain people with certain dogs to have six-foot fences and more homeowners insurance to me that's just kind of like skirting around to make it cost prohibitive to have that kind of dog and and I don't think that's fair what's next you know Rottweilers, boxers, you know, there will always be something. So right now it's pit bulls and shame on the people that, that are raising them to be vicious. Mm -hmm. And 20 years ago, it was Dobermans. Right. And before that, it was Rottweilers. Right. So, you know, this this isn't new. This, this desire to try to restrict or ban right. breeds is not a new thing. It's just a new breed. And 20 years from now, it will be another breed. So... Mm -hmm. Um, and, and which just supports, again, that it's, um, it's not effective. It's not improving public safety to mention specific breeds or restrict certain breeds. Mm -hmm. And then in your, um, you know, just to, for kind of interest purposes, in Voiceless, do mm -hmm. you get a lot of pit bulls? We do. Okay. It, there's a reason for that because, and I'm glad you brought that up. Mm -hmm. I was at the Ingham County Animal Shelter just recently, and at least half of the dogs, maybe more, were either a pit bull or a pit bull mix. 
Um, and that is because they are a very popular breed right now. They've always been somewhat popular. I mean, they've, they've been known as the nanny dog for a hundred years. Um, they've been military dogs. They're, they've always been popular, but in the last 20 years, they've really, um, you know, skyrocketed in popularity. So, and 20 years ago, it was the, the Doberman. So anytime there's a higher percentage of a certain breed, that breed is going to be um, filling up the shelters more and more and more. So, um, yeah, so simply, you know, they, they are in fact um, victims of their own popularity right now. Um, but yeah, we see probably half of our dogs are generally a pit bull or a pit bull mix um, because that's about the ratio of what's out there in the general population today um, because there's a lot of unwanted or accidental litters being born. Um, and by the way, we do offer low cost, low, in some cases, free spay neuter programs um, to help people that can't afford it. Um, so, yeah, we see a lot. And because that's, I was curious if, you know, you do have all these pit bulls, do you think people will be turned away from them because of this, you know, whole vicious legislation talk and, you know, pit bull being scared and life-threatening talk? Well, you know, nationwide there are 308 municipalities with some kind of breed-specific legislation. It doesn't necessarily mean the, the breed is banned, but there's some kind of restriction on the breed. And that number changes a little bit. You know, it's a dynamic number. But when you consider the number of cities out there in the United States, that's a very small number. Um, and so I think for the most part, most people see that it's not an effective way to, to, to um, police animals. It's not effective. And um, so, yeah, I, I, think, I think that most people um, see that it's, it's just not the way to go. Okay, well, thank you guys very much for your thank time. You. Do you have anything else you'd like to add? I just want to say that I am not for breed specific. I really, really want to do whatever it takes to enforce what we already have on the books. And I really would like to thank everybody who did offer me a communication and to folks like Beth that actually came down and spoke to us and let us know what the, um, what the spirit really is out there regarding a breed specific law. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Well, thank you, Joni and Beth. And I would like to commend the, the committee, the Public Safety Committee, for being so diligent in doing their research. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thanks. You're listening to Impact Exposure. received word of an invasion. Speak quickly, maggot. Is it those Canadians again? I don't know, sir. We've just heard that Monday at 8 p.m. the impact will be invaded. You stupid ninny. That's the Asian invasion. It's the poppiest, catchiest, and all-around toe-tapping his music out of the Korea, Japan, and China. But, sir, I'm no good with Asian dialects. Shut up and listen to the music, private. That catchy beat knows no language barrier. Now move out, everyone. Sir, yes, sir. The Asian invasion. Monday nights from 8 till 10. on The impact. For more variety than you'll hear on any other station, listen to the Impact Primetime, Prime Time. where you can find a different specialty show every night of the week. Thursday nights from 10 until 2 a.m. Listen to the hours and hours. The scariest and only metal show in the mid-Michigan area. Only on Impact Primetime. Now back to Impact Exposure. Exposure. 
Food is very important to college students, and these days, undergrads seem to be getting more than just the classic ramen noodles. Impact's Alex Schrag talks about where students are getting their food. Remember the food fight days across school cafeterias? Well, there's a new food fight around the East Lansing community, on-campus versus off-campus food. One new off-campus alternative coming to MSU this Monday is Food for Thought, a university-owned food truck. Kellogg Center and MSU sous chef Matt Wilson is the food truck head operator. We're just trying to offer, I guess, something that may be atypical from other things you would find here on campus. That's how we want to set ourselves apart. According to Chef Wilson, Food for Thought will base their food off ingredients from campus, which include the Bailey Hoop House, the Student Organic Farms, and the MSU Dairy Store. I don't know of another food service outlet on campus that does that much of it. Like, they may get some lettuce from the farm to put on a salad bar in Yakely, things like that, but it's not, there's nowhere that'll be as inclusive as we are. Campus Cooks is another off-campus option for students. Chef Jason Hoffman, who cooks for the Alpha Epsilon Pi fraternity and Kappa Alpha Theta sorority, gives another advantage that is sometimes unmatched. Well, I mean, the fact is, is that you don't have to walk three blocks, four blocks, half a mile, whatever it may be. But how do students who live in dorms feel about their on-campus meal plans? Freshman Billy Weinger says the meal plan is the best part about living in the dorms. A hundred meals, it's like 700 bucks or something, so for seven bucks for all you can eat, I think that's a pretty good deal. And now, St. Patrick's Day and NCAA tournament have been two big reasons for excitement in East Lansing. While students and residents see the festivities as fun celebrations, the East Lansing Police Department sees them as reasons for preparation. Impact's Gabriela Saldivia spoke with Police Captain Jeff Murphy, who has been at the East Lansing Police Department for 26 years. They spoke about how the Police Department handles these Spartan celebrations. How does the police department plan and prepare for such a large holiday, such as St. Patrick's Day? Well, we try to anticipate what our 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 call load or call volume would be, and and a lot of that has to do with how many people we feel will be in town um, on a holiday like St. Patrick's Day, early spring or late winter. Um, the weather can be a a pretty major contributing factor. So usually what we what we always find is the nicer it is, the more busy we get because the more willing people are are to come out and um come outside and and just, you know, the more people, the more we have to do typically. So with St. Patrick's Day um last year, 2012, it was about 75 degrees and there was people out all over the place. Um our call load was very high, and when it gets as high as it did in 2012, we don't have any time or very little time to do proactive police work. So instead of preventing things from happening, we fall back in, into the mode of just responding to um, just responding to calls and being reactive, which isn't you know, really a good spot for us to be because, you know, we're not preventing anything. We're just, we're just following the trends and, and um, trying to play catch up all day or all evening. So for 2013, we didn't want that to happen. So we staffed heavily. We also, uh, in addition to our East Lansing officers, we had the Michigan State University police help us, the Michigan State police, and the Ingham County Sheriff's Office help us with our staffing levels. 
How many people did you have working on Sunday? Well, we don't ever go into exact numbers, but it was uh, um, fairly heavily staffed and definitely a lot more than we would have had on a normal Sunday. How did um, this year's St. Patrick's Day being on a Sunday compare to last year's being on a Saturday? Did that have any kind of effect or was it all? Well, I don't think the day of the week had as much uh, effect as the weather. It was, You know, they were both weekends. Um, we had a lot of potential to be busy. It, it was only about 32 degrees, although in the afternoon it got sunny and fairly nice. And as soon as as soon as the weather started getting getting nice last weekend, our call load and and everything else went up. It, it, from about noon till four, we were we were quite busy with uh, um, some bigger parties that started forming. Our officers are doing proactive work looking for. Um, minors that have been drinking, open alcohol in public, those sorts of things, and, and we did get quite busy with those till about 4 o'clock, and then things calmed back down and, and we're fine. What's the biggest challenge in keeping the city free from disruptions on big holidays or celebrations such as St. Patrick's Day? I guess the biggest challenge is just how you go about doing that. You know, if... Um, you know, we could have every police officer we have working, and if people were um, determined to cause destruction or or commit crimes, there wouldn't be a whole lot we could do about it. Luckily, we have uh, law enforcement friends that are willing to come in and help to up our manpower numbers. And the biggest thing really is that, you know, most people, students or non-students, aren't really out to break their law. They're just out to have a good time. It's it. You know, and, and having a good time is, is never any, you know, it's never a problem. It's just, you know, those very few or, or very small percentage of people in town that, you know, take it a little too far and the good time turns into a crime or, or something dangerous, uh, that's when we have to get involved. And, and luckily for us, um, the people that are going are gonna to commit crimes are, it's a very small percentage. So right now, this week, actually, we're just entering into the NCAA tournament. So are you preparing for celebrations or increased busyness in that regard? I know Michigan State uh, has a past of that kind of activity. Well, yeah, there, you know, there's been times over the years where things have gotten crazy after games and it doesn't really seem to matter if MSU loses or if MSU wins. It's just uh, it, it's usually a game that brings a lot of people to town um, mm-hmm. at the end of the game. Sometimes things happen, and we've been preparing to deal with a lot of different possibilities for several weeks. Um, what we do is, is uh, you know, the early, the early uh, games aren't usually as, you know, as, as big a deal for us or as, you know, big of potential problems just because they're not as big a game but the the further MSU goes into the tournament the more games they win uh, the higher the stakes the the more excitement there is the more people that come to town and usually the bigger reaction either for a loss or for a win you know the bigger reaction we get so um, we just keep up in our staffing and you know, upping our numbers um, the further into the tournament MSU gets. Yeah, so is this something you guys face every year? 
every year that MSU's in the tournament, which is pretty much every year. <laughs> <laughs> um, is there anything that you try to proactively do to prevent it beforehand? I'm not sure, like um, campaign. Yeah, one of the biggest things we do is we participate in the Celebrations Committee, which is uh, made up of community leaders. Um, The police department is part of that. There's several uh, Michigan State University officials, the um, Michigan State University police. There's uh, several student groups represented on the Celebrations Committee, Um, some landlords, and, and just community leaders from all over the East Lansing MSU area. And we meet throughout the year, uh, several meetings throughout the year, and we try to come up with uh, good practices on how to promote, how, how to promote, you know, how to tell people to have a good time, but to do it responsibly. Mm-hmm. So, so celebrate, celebrate responsibly. Um, some of the things that we've done this year are, um, uh, table tents have been put in in the dorms on campus to just remind people of that, you know, celebrate celebrate responsibly um, motto. Uh, the same table tents have been put in bars in East Lansing. There's been t-shirt, t-shirts passed out, emails sent to MSU students and LCC students as as well as other people in the community, and it's just uh, just an ongoing effort to promote that promote that thought of, you know, responsible celebration and not let things get out of hand and basically to um, police yourselves. You know, if you see if you see a friend or a neighbor acting irresponsibly, that reflects neg- negatively on, on everybody. So, you know, maybe tell them that that's not cool and knock it off. Is, that's the message that we try to put out. Yeah, going off that, my next question was, do you have any advice to students for how they can safely celebrate? Well, the biggest thing is is when these celebrations get out of hand, it it's um, it, there's a negative effect on everybody. There's negative effect on the city of East Lansing, Michigan State University, the students, the non-student residents. Everybody pays a price when things get out of hand, and so just if you you know if you see something, don't ignore it. You know, if it's something that the police need to deal with, call the police. If it's something that you can deal with on your own, you know, tell the people to knock it off if possible, if you can do that safely. But just the the biggest thing is, you know, we like to have everybody come to town and have fun. That that benefits everybody. But just if it starts to go beyond fun into criminal activity, we, we need to know about it, and it needs to be stopped. Well, thank you very much. Do you have anything else you'd like to add? Just good luck to MSU. Okay, great. Well, thank you for taking the time to talk to us. Okay, bye. Bye Bye-bye. In late February and early March, one of Michigan State's doctoral students competed on the popular game show Jeopardy. Sarah Garnett recently took home $77,403 after a four-day run on Jeopardy. She's in the studio now to talk about her experience. Welcome, Sarah. Hi there, everyone. (laughs) <laughs> now, firstly, congratulations on your winnings. That's outstanding. <laughs> Thanks. What do you plan to do with all that money? Um, something I'm still trying to figure out exactly what to do. Um, obviously, at least some of it should probably go to something responsible, but um, still trying to figure out something fun I can do with it. So that Camaro out in the parking lot was not yours? <laughs> no, it was not. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, when did you decide that you wanted to compete in Jeopardy? 
Um, so this has been something that I've kind of thought about at least a little bit for most of my life. Um, when I was a kid, I would watch it with my grandmother. Um, and then in high school and college, I do quiz bowl. So kind of, I've always been involved in academic competition like this. Um, and so, but the past year, last March was the first time I actually seriously, uh, thought about trying out for the show. How do you get chosen? Um, so there's a couple stages to the process. So first, early on in the year, there's an online test where a ton of people log on at one time and take a 50-question test. Um, you have about 15 seconds to type your answer to each question. Um, they're kind of structured like the questions on the show, where sometimes the category is some cutesy pun. Sometimes it's just some weird thing you have to know. Um, and then some subset of people who pass that get invited to audition sometime in the next year. Um, so I took the test in March, and then in May I auditioned in Toledo. So there they give you another test, um, I guess mostly to see if you had some kind of help when you were taking it online. Um, and then they give you, um, call you in three at a time to play a mini game and do a little mock interview. And mostly there, I think they're trying to see, do you keep the game moving? Um, are your stories interesting? Are you someone people might want to see on TV? Um, and then pretty much after that, you're in the pool of contestants for 18 months. So they could call you pretty much at any time. Um, so then in September, which was about a month before I taped, um, I got a call and went out to Culver City. Wow. Yeah. Now, is it competitive <laughs> in that whole process? Um, it's pretty competitive. Um, a ton of people obviously sign up and then a pretty large um, number audition and only about 400 people, I think, make it onto the show in any given year. Um, I don't remember the exact numbers for the test and the auditions, but it's definitely a really competitive process. And what was your experience like on the show? How would you describe it? Um, so... One thing that some people watching the show might not realize is that they actually tape five episodes in one day um, and tape two days a week. So when they talk about, oh, maybe the champ has had a long layoff between games, it's probably only about 15 minutes. Um, <laughs> you just bring some extra clothes with you so you can go back and change into an outfit and get ready to do the whole thing again. Wow. Is it what you expected? Um, a little bit. Um, one thing that was kind of pleasantly surprising is that so they bring in like 12 contestants for a tape day and you'd think that all these people who obviously want to be on this trivia game show might be really cutthroat but it's actually a really fun um, supportive kind of atmosphere even though you do have to eventually go up against at least some of them. So when the camera shuts off you're not you know staring at each other with greedy <laughs> eyes or anything? No no. What do you think of uh, Mr. Trebek? Um we didn't spend a whole lot of time with him outside of taping, but um, he's pretty similar to what you might guess from TV. He's a little little snarky, got a good sense of humor. Um, so during the, the breaks, he would take questions from the audience. Um, probably the most surprising thing we learned is that he drives a pickup truck. Uh, <laughs> really? Might be surprised, but yes. So that Camaro wasn't his either, huh? No, it was no. not. <laughs> <laughs> and now, how do you prepare for Jeopardy? Um... It's really, it is really hard since they don't tell you anything of, like, you have no idea what questions might come up in a given game. Um, and they kind of randomly draw from pools of games just to make sure that there's no chance that you knew ahead of time which questions you were getting. So it could be pretty much, pretty much anything. Um, it helped that I had played Quiz Bowl before, so I do have some basic knowledge of a lot of different subjects. Um, and then there's also websites where really, really dedicated Jeopardy fans have put a lot of old clues from games online. So you can go and get an idea of 
what kind of things they might ask about topics you're weak in. And then, I mean, there's always, they'll probably ask you about presidents. They'll probably ask about Shakespeare. Um, so there's some things that you'll probably see, um, but it could be just about anything. So you're not given the topics at all in advance? No. Oh, I always, always thought they were. Yeah. <laughs> kind of made me feel better. <laughs> um, now, what was the most difficult topic, I guess, that you had to face? Um, hmm. Well, clearly the thing that I knew the least about was the secondary mascots of Georgia Tech. Um, that's probably, probably the things I prepared for the most in advance for the show were things like opera, trying to learn a little bit more about sports than I know, although I didn't hit everything, um, trying to brush up on some geography. Um, although the good news is some of those preparing actually did help. Um, there were things that I probably wouldn't have gotten on the show if I hadn't tried to brush up. And all the while, while you're a doctoral student, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and what are you studying here at Michigan State? Um, I'm studying zoology. Okay. Um, so I'm also in the ecology, evolutionary biology, and behavior program. Um, and I actually, since I finished up my course requirements, I'm living out at the Kellogg Biological Station. That's great. So you got that category covered. Yeah. <laughs> what do you want to do um, in your future? Um, I'm still trying to work out exactly, but I'd like to do something involving research and teaching, probably at the college level. And when you were on Jeopardy, was it common for, for instance, PhD students, college level students, or what was the age, um, I guess, the most common age? Um, there was a pretty broad range while I was on there. I think there were a couple others who were kind of within my age range, um, a couple more middle-aged people, um, and there don't tend to be as many older people, um, but there were a few. So it was a pretty broad range. Were you nervous at all? A little bit. Um, probably the, the worst is sitting like right before when the music is playing before the game starts. But once the game is actually going, it's going about real time. They're not really stopping a lot. So you don't really have a lot of time to think about it. You just have to keep going. Did you feel like it was, um, you know, did it feel like the TV spot when the pressure's on and the audience is, you know, really into the game? Or was it a little different because it wasn't live? Um, it's still pretty similar to that. Um, so it's not live, but they, they bring in the audience to tape it. They try to tape it as close to real time as possible. They'll stop for the commercial breaks. Um, if there's a mistake or they have to research an alternate answer, they might take a break. But otherwise, um, it pretty much goes in real time other than the... Um, the time you have right before the final Jeopardy clue, which is the only time they kind of stop it for a little bit longer than you see on TV. And then the final Jeopardy questions, did you know most of them or were you guessing on any? Um, well, so I, I was able to, I got three of them right. Um, and two of them were kind of, I didn't necessarily know the anecdote they were referencing, but a lot of times in Final Jeopardies, they'll put in some other bit of information that you can use to kind of figure out what they're talking about, even if you don't know right offhand what it is. So I was able to do that, luckily. <laughs> um, now, what was the most interesting person who you were competing against, you'd say? Hmm. There were a couple interesting personalities. There was one guy in my second game who talked about competing in medieval martial arts. Um, and then we also, my third game, there was a guy who was a government librarian, but um, became most notable, I, I, I think, on the internet for his interview story, which was about his uh, bedwetting as a child. Um, oh. <laughs> pretty surprised. <laughs> He's got that category covered. Yeah. <laughs> and then lastly, did you get the, you know, theme song stuck in your head after you left? A little bit, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, do you, do you have anything else you'd like to add, Sarah? 
Um, nothing much, just that it was a really great experience. Um, and even if it seems like something that maybe you're afraid to do or you've never quite pushed yourself, um, it's really easy to get the ball rolling on the process and anything can happen, I guess, once you're out there. So, And also, really... are you allowed to do it again? Um, so no, you're not allowed to go back on Jeopardy. There's some confusion based on the rules because I think technically it says as long as Alex is host. So there's some speculation that if he retires, maybe you'll be allowed, but probably they'll close that loophole. Um, the one way that you can go back is through the Tournament of Champions that they hold periodically. Um, so technically all you need to be eligible for that is to win three games. Um, beyond that, they break ties based on winnings, and they also reserve some spots from um, for winners of like the college tournament or the teachers tournament. So since they only take the top 15 on that list, um, it's not really a sure thing. But technically, I'm sitting here crossing my fingers to see what happens for the next year or so on Jeopardy. So you'd definitely be willing to do that again? Definitely. I would. I would love the chance to go back. Well, we encourage you to, you know, maybe you can go get that Camaro out. In the yeah. <laughs> well, thank you very much for your time, Sarah. Thank you. You're listening to Impact Exposure. Smoking helpline. Yes, I need to start smoking right away. Excuse me? I need to start smoking. Well, actually, it's the Stop Smoking Helpline. The people in the apartment next to mine smoke three packs a day, and it drives me crazy. So I'm thinking four packs will do it. I think you want mysmokefreeapartment.org. It gives you the information you need to work toward a smoke-free apartment building. A smoke-free building? Without all that smoking? Uh, yeah, that's right. Make your apartment smoke-free without making a stink. Mysmokefreeapartment.org. For more variety than you'll hear on any other station, listen to the Impact Primetime, Primetime, where you can find a different specialty show every night of the week. Wednesday nights from 8 until midnight, it's the Impact's Accidental Blues, your source for great blues music, news, and concert information. Only on Impact Primetime. Hola, my name is Esperanza. After a tragic incident, I was forced from a life of riches in Mexico to a life of poverty in the United States. My mother has become ill and we have become separated from our family. Now I must work for both of us to try to bring the rest of our family together. My name is Esperanza and I am trying to survive. Explore new worlds. Read my story in the novel Esperanza Rising by Pam Muñoz Ryan. For other great book ideas, visit your local library or log on to literacy.gov. Brought to you by the Library of Congress and the Ad Council. Now back to Impact Exposure. Michigan State University, pedestrians and bicyclists seem to think that they rule campus, while drivers speed through inter intersections to get where they are going on time. However, recent collisions and accidents have shown that drivers and pedestrians must be conscious of each other to ensure a safe campus. Impact's Carmen Scruggs reports. With over 47,000 students at Michigan State, there are plenty of opportunities for cyclists, drivers, and pedestrians to collide. For some Spartans, the sidewalks are more dangerous than the road. MSU Police Department reported only 16 pedestrian vehicle accidents in 2012, but exactly how often do Spartans experience these kinds of collisions, and how should they be avoided? Michael Gendernalek, an MSU junior, says he has been hit on or around campus three times since 2010. Two accidents occurred while he was riding his bike and another while he was walking. Fortunately for Michael, he got away unharmed each time. 
Like I was pulling right out of Spartan Stadium as I was riding on the sidewalk, and he didn't look to his right, and I got T-boned, and I fell on his hood, and like hit my head on his windshield, and then embarrassingly enough, my foot got stuck inside of my bike. Gender Alex says drivers should be more aware to avoid collisions like those of his own. I feel like it's just, there needs to be like more consciousness about what people are doing when they're driving. The guy who hit me in front of Spartan Stadium didn't look to his right before he turned right to see that a bikeless was coming. And then the girl that hit me was texting on her phone and we're multitasking too much or not really caring enough while we're driving. Other students like sophomore Melissa Smith haven't been so lucky walking away from accidents unharmed. Smith was the victim of a hit and run accident as she was crossing Red Cedar and Wilson on her bicycle. I always ride my bike super fast so I was riding it and there was like the five second stop thing and I decided to go anyways because I always make it and the guy decided to like inch up and so he hit me. <laughs> I nailed his window pretty, pretty hard. As for the driver, he was never found. I like looked him face to face with my bloody, <laughs> bloody face, and then he just drove away. Melissa says that although she had the right of way when crossing, she should not have risked the chance of being hit by oncoming traffic. Although drivers should always be aware of pedestrians, bicyclists, and other vehicles, MSU sophomore Sarah Cox, who accidentally hit a pedestrian with her car, says it is just as important for pedestrians and bicyclists to be aware and patient of vehicles. Cox said while turning right on Abbott, a bicyclist darted around a group of stopped pedestrians on the sidewalk. The bicyclist cut in front of Cox and landed on her hood after the pedestrian crosswalk sign indicated not to walk. My sister and her boyfriend were with me, so they got out and like helped him out, and he didn't want to call the police, and so we just exchanged numbers, and then I ended up paying for the damage to his bike. But I recently found out that he was drunk, and that's why he didn't want to call the police. MSU Police Lieutenant Randy Holton says many vehicle pedestrian accidents can also be prevented if pedestrians, bicyclists, and drivers obey the laws. Holton says drivers have the right of way unless a pedestrian has established their position in the crosswalk. At the same time, pedestrians should give drivers enough time to react and not be distracted when crossing in front of traffic. Another key rule Holton points out is that bicyclists should use bike lanes and not sidewalks. MSU has an ordinance that basically says that um, bicyclists have to go ahead and use bike paths or the right side of the road. They're not allowed to ride on the sidewalk. What we view is here at MSU is the crosswalk is an extension of the sidewalk. Ultimately, Holton says keeping vehicle pedestrian collisions to a minimum comes down to three factors, engineering, education, and enforcement. You have the engineers that go out there and try to design things that are safe. And then, of course, what we do is we try to educate the community on safety, being safe pedestrians, being safe bicyclists, being safe motorists. The backup is the enforcement. With your Impact News, I'm Carmen Scruggs. The country of Syria has faced much violence and corruption in the past two years. The violence began in March 2011 from clashes between President Bashar al-Assad's government and the rebel forces who want him out. Since then, CNN estimates that 7,500 people have died. In the studio today is Enes Atal. He was born in Syria and came to share his thoughts on his native country. Hello. Hi. Welcome to Exposure. Thank you very much. Now, first off, what's your perception of what is happening in Syria? Well, uh, the, this is a social movement uh, aims to bring um, democracy into Syria. It initially started as peaceful protests and then it turned into violent or militarized uh, rebels, as you know, eventually. And uh, 
the hopes to uh, take off the government, the entire government, not only the president, because the president is not the only issue we have in the government. It's an entire system. And hopefully replace it with a more democratic system that uh, represents every Syrian in the country, despite of their background, uh, religious background, ethnic background, or color. or whatever. Yeah. Do you think the movement is progressing and actually working, I guess? Yeah, uh, generally speaking, yeah. Uh, unfortunately, there has been some, uh, like some uh, uh, parties within the revolution itself or the rebels have taken a different lead, which has its explanations. But generally speaking, it's been going in good terms. It's very costly, though. I bet. And if you were in Syria right now, would you partake in the rebellion forces? Uh, fighting? Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know. Maybe I don't know. I'm uh, more into like the peaceful uh, side of the protests. I wish it stayed peaceful. I wasn't uh, pro-militarizing the uh, revolution. However, if I was there, it, it would have depended. It's, I, I wouldn't know. And um, you immigrated to America in the summer of 2008. And um, not being in your country during this time, what is that like? That is very difficult, actually. Only me and uh, my roommate uh, <laughs> know how that feels. Uh, it's um, Every day I wake up, I go to sleep pretty late doing homework. <laughs> Imagine. Uh, yeah. <laughs> but uh, before when, when I go to sleep, it's almost uh, morning there. So when I go to sleep, I'm hoping for uh, to read good news. And then I sleep, I wake up, the first thing I do is read the news. I always have my family on an uh, application called WhatsApp on uh, my cell phone. I also get updated every day of what's happening to them. So I'm always in hopes for news, uh, good news. Uh, there has been good news recently. Um, I also watch a uh, lot of like, videos of my country. I stopped watching uh, videos of... Uh, the revolution itself and uh, people dying because I started uh, getting uh, nightmares and uh, my uh, uh, performance in school uh, went down and the trouble sleeping, especially when you see a friend dying. But uh, after that, I stopped, you know, I'm doing better on sleep and everything else. And the family members who do live in Syria of yours, what have they been saying about what's been going on? My family members? Mm -hmm. Who, Who live in Syria? Oh, they're very tired. Uh, they want to, in one hand, they want to stay in the country. In the other hand, uh, they can't take it anymore. They don't have electricity. They don't have water. They they always live in fear. I Sometimes when I Skype, Skype with my uh, family, I hear the sound of bombs. My cousins cry, like little ones. Uh, it's uh, very uh, depressing. I feel uh, very bad. I wish I could do something, which makes me feel, uh, you know, worse about myself, but... Uh, there is not. There is no power in my hand. Are you scared? Am I scared mm-hmm. about your country's future? I guess you could say. Uh, I've been scared for. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> I've been scared since I was uh, alive, since I was born, because I never felt uh, safe in my own country. I never uh, trusted my government nor my uh, military forces. Of course, there are many good people within the government and the military. I'm not generalizing, but. But you don't know. So uh, I've, I have been scared for many, for many, many years. And you're studying international relations here at Michigan That's State. Correct. Um, what has the, I guess, 
you know, having the experience of what Syria is, what Syria is actually going through and then coming here to America, what do you think of the American perception of what's going on? Uh, in the Middle East? Mm-hmm. It's really difficult to uh, to get the full picture here in the U.S., uh, partly because there isn't uh, news coverage in, in Syria of what's happening. The government doesn't allow. So you either have pro-regime, pro-revolution. Um, uh, you don't have one in the middle. Uh, sadly speaking, I see a lot the media try to portray the, um, the revolution as sectarian. Some, some, or it has some elements of sectarian, or as, as a civil war. I, yes, it is civil war, but I, as a Syrian, do not see it or accept it as a civil war. I see it as a revolution. Because when I think of a civil war, personally, I would think of, you know, two sects fighting. No, it's everyone, not, not everyone, but like Syrians from different backgrounds fighting a government for democracy for all Syrians. So it's more of a revolution than a civil war to me. And uh, the, it, it might have some elements of uh, sectarianism, but it's very little. It's not, it's not a major. And they show, they show it as an Islamist. For example, they show fighters with beards. They show like those scary stuff to people here in America. Which is, you know, which is normal, you know, doing like uh, the majority of Syria is Muslims and logically speaking, doing the math, you know, most of the fighters would be Muslims. They they may grow beards, they may pray, they may praise God. Yes, there are element of Islam, but they're not when you Islamist, like in a like very strict way. And uh, the only explanation uh, for beads for me would be they have nowhere to shave nowadays. <laughs> Everyone's closed. <laughs> there you go. Yeah. I mean, again, you've mentioned before the show that you, with international relations, you want to be an ambassador. Yeah. Um, and what do you hope to do as an ambassador? I want to be the ambassador of uh, Syria in the Human Rights Council in Geneva. I did an internship, uh, or I worked in there last summer, and uh, I hope to do that in the future. I would like to see uh, Syria as a... Uh, the democratic and uh, champions uh, human rights gives uh, human equal equal rights to everyone, uh, equal rights like genders, uh, and uh, so that's what I want to fight for as an ambassador of Syria. And I believe in that cause, and that's why I changed my major. I was a business major. I changed my major because I uh, be I I like changed my life to get you know to you know take myself that take well, that road. Well, thank you very much. We wish yeah. you the best of luck. Thank you very much. Yeah. You're listening to Impact Exposure. For more variety than you'll hear on any other station, listen to the Impact Primetime, where you can find a different specialty show every night of the week. Friday nights at 10 p.m., get ready for The Mechanical Pulse, where we're spinning all the house, trance, drum and bass, electro, ambient, and remixed music you need to get the weekend started. You'll hear live interviews and DJs spinning straight from the Impact Studios and the best new music on the scene. So tune in every Friday night at 10 p.m. for Mechanical Pulse. Only on 88.9 The Impact. Have you ever considered donating your blood? If not, perhaps you might reconsider. By the time this announcement is through, 15 new people will need blood. In fact, blood is needed by one in every 10 hospital patients, and there is almost always a shortage. There is no substitute for human blood. It cannot be manufactured. It can only come from those willing to donate. To learn more or make an appointment, visit redcrossblood.org. Reconsider blood donation. It's about life. Now back to Impact Exposure. 
now we have a Michigan State student on our Michigan Storyteller portion of Exposure. Welcome to the show, Nick Carver. How you doing, Abby? I'm good. How about you? I'm good. Good. Doing well. Now, what do you have to share with us today? Uh, Just a couple poems. One's called Rest, and the other I didn't really put a title to. We'll call it Nameless. Nameless. (laughs) Could call it Nameless. (laughs) Okay, well, go ahead. You're all up. Okay, cool. Um, So this is Rest. Uh, My kingdom, or backpack for a bed, wake up, walk, sit down, study, work hard, play harder, then work twice as hard. Can I get some sleep without an alarm, harassing me to hustle, into the shower, and out the door, Catch the bus, sleep, till my stop surprises, jolted from my dreams by chasing them. Give me what I want, I doubt that extremely. Take what you want and strive for success. If there's no rest for the wicked, do the good sleep soundly. Only God knows. If you believe in miracles, I fall into bed, my pillow is perfection. And that's the first one. And then I got the other one. This is nameless, as we've decided to call it. Um, How did I forget... About you, my friend, I apologize, I'm busy. Been a while since I've talked. To myself, I'm paper pieces. I'm trying to stay afloat in the sea of humanity, figuring out my finite little length of life. Should I teach, should I write, or should I work until my back and knees quit? Wish I could find peace, but I lack the map. Guess I'll keep going with drive like my foot stuck, find friends for fun, or get a good girl. Stop screwing around, get a job I like and a lady I love. That's what we all want. Right? Good talk, though. Same time next week. <laughs> Very good. Now, were both of those um, talking about your own life or just in general? Uh, the first one was, second one was just kind of like, I don't know, I wrote the first one and then the second one just kind of, I didn't want to stop. I was kind of feeling it. <laughs> Do you write, um, I mean, how, where does your inspiration come from? Uh, just kind of when I sit down and have enough time to actually do it, which is very far and few between anymore, but... <laughs> According to the first poem. Yeah, right. <laughs> but uh, yeah, it's uh, it's. I've always enjoyed writing since I was younger. So. Great. Well, thank you very much for coming in, Nick. We appreciate it. Yeah. And good luck with the rest of your writing. Yeah. <laughs> and that concludes Exposure this evening. Thank you for tuning in. Special thanks to our producer, Gabriela Saldivia, our general manager, Aaron Young, and our station manager, Ed Glazer. Keeping you informed and bidding you farewell until next week. I'm Abby Newton for Impact Exposure 89FM. <laughs> Broadcasting from the campus of Michigan State University, you've been listening to Impact Exposure. Exposure.